You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. you think the ABC's left wing... Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. Good morning, this is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we're going to uh, follow the... uh, rousing uh, stick-together show uh, with a bit of news from a variety of different uh, aspects of the uh, world that we live in. Uh, Social Security Department has abandoned outside debt collectors, which is a great thing. This is an announcement that the ACOS put out. They've uh, said that this is a great thing. Of course, it is a great thing. Uh, Robo-debt debt hit people when they were going through the hardest of times, ACOS said, after the death of a family member in the wake of a natural disaster. And when they... W- when they were living on next to nothing, struggling to cover the cost of three meals a day. Thousands of people first found out about having a robo-debt by an external debt collector with almost half of all robo-debts in 2017 being sent to these companies for collection. And apparently Centrelink has now stopped this process, which is, uh, uh, ACOS says, this is a great thing uh, and that... uh, um, Perhaps uh, they can make uh, better um, inroads into what's going on in in, uh, social security land. Uh, The uh, Australia Institute's just put out a new report on exactly the same thing, really, in Inequalities on Steroids, the Distribution of Economic Growth in Australia. You can go to their website and look it up. As they say, uh, since uh, 2009, 93% of our economic growth has flown to the top 10% of income earners. Um, It's, uh, they say that... uh, uh, claims that uh, benefits of economic growth would trickle down uh, uh, has been absurd. In actual fact, the benefits of growth are being hoovered up and uh, they put it that uh, rising inequality doesn't just happen, it reflects the full range of choices we as a nation have made. We chose to suppress unemployment benefits, the minimum wage and public sector pay wages, and we chose to cut taxes for high incomes, tax capital gains at half the rate we tax wage income and to spend $50 billion per year on tax concessions for superannuation causing inequality isn't cheap. And they're running a campaign against the uh, 
stage three tax cuts, which they say were legislated by the previous federal government. It's up to the current government to decide whether it wants to reverse this trend or continue to drive our economy and society in the direction left by the coalition. Couldn't agree more. Um, there's a... Um, uh, an announcement coming, uh, you know, the terrible uh, earthquakes that uh, happened in uh, Turkey and Syria. I mean, the news cycle's moved on, but of course uh, the uh, bodies are still being buried and people are still in a polar state. There's going to be on Saturday, 22nd of April at 1pm at Bar Uzu. Now, Bar Uzu is actually at... Um, 653 Sydney Road, Brunswick. That's 653 Sydney Road, Brunswick. And the date is April the 22nd and it's 1pm. They're going to have uh, Earthquake Relief, World Music and Barbecue. Uh, so you can get tickets on Humanix, uh, Earthquake Relief, World Music um, you can look it up, but you could probably connect uh, yourself with the bar. You could turn up. Uh, this is what they say. We have a massive day and line up to raise funds for the 2023 Turkey-Syria earthquake. Come along and show your support. Come and join us for a thrilling day of world music performances by talented DJs and live bands from Melbourne, all taking place at Uzu. Uh, that's O-U-S-S-O-U for the uninitiated we have performers from all styles of the world, Greek, South Asia, Anatolia, Lebanese, Turkish, Arabic, funk, disco, indie pop and more. As a special treat, the Bar Usu team has graciously offered to provide us with a barbecue where we can cook and enjoy the delicious Turkish classic Sukuk Ekmek, also known as Sukuk and bread, as well as their popular Mezi plate. Don't miss out on on this exciting event. If you want to find out more about it, there is a number, 9384 Uh Yeah, um, help out. It's one of those things that uh, we, we would hope that people would do for us. From Iran to the Americas, the Pacific to Palestine, and here in so-called Australia, people are standing up for freedom and liberation. This May Day at Melbourne State Library, join the voice of Revolution Iran Melbourne, the Black People's Union, renegade activists, unionists, and people from all over the world as we stand together in understanding that we are all in this together. A lineup of speakers and music from around the world demanding justice and celebrating our common struggles and our common humanity will be announced on the event page soon. You can find the event by searching May Day for Freedom and Liberation on Facebook. May Day for Freedom and Liberation, 5.30pm, Monday 1st of May at State Library, Victoria. A 3CR community radio supporter. with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and you'll be aware that uh, that is the May Day event that's going to happen on May the 1st, 5.30 outside the State Library and on May the 7th, Sunday May the 7th, there's a follow-up event outside a Trades Hall, a big event, uh, that's when the May Day March will happen. The March starts at, uh, or the gathering 
I think there's going to be entertainments and uh, sausage sizzle, etc. Starting in around 10, people are going to start congregating. But the actual event, uh, 1 o'clock and the march at 2. That's uh, May the 7th outside uh, Victoria Trades Hall. That's on the corner, of course, of uh, Ligon and Victoria. Uh Today on Solidarity Breakfast, we're going to follow up the uh, AIEU laws that um, are being looked at and probably will be passed very shortly. Uh, That's the AI uh, European Union laws. The reason why we're going to look at that is because of the increasing uh, invasion of AI technology uh, into our world Um, and uh, this is the first major constituency that has come up with any kind of thoughts around a legislation and control of AI regulation. Um, And we're going to talk to uh, Professor Marsden from uh, Monash Law faculty around some of the issues and just get a perspective on it. Uh, it, And uh, later on, we're going to talk to Anthony Snowden. You will know Anthony from Box 4. If you go to demonstrations or anything of that sort, you probably have seen Anthony. Anthony is a diligent coverer of uh, the streets in... um, in uh, demonstration, and he uh, is pretty ecumenical, in fact, not just left, but right, and uh, everything in between. Uh, but in this is uh, uh, talking to Anthony about an event that's coming up at the New International Bookshop at 3.30pm uh, Thursday, the 20th of April, next week. It's the 20th anniversary of the Baxter Detention Centre protests, um, there were two, uh, 2003 and 2005, and often people conflate them. Uh, Baxter, of course, is in the um, is quite a, a far off place, uh, as we'll discuss with uh, Anthony. And so, when demonstrators went there, this was one of the very first detention centres that were put up to put uh, refugees in. It was the marks the establishment of the uh, the refugee system that we have today and uh, the draconian kind of system that was created. Uh, It was actually created by the Labor Party. Um, I can remember when it was actually being discussed uh, and why it was thought to be a good idea. But anyway, it's in the middle of the desert out there and uh, people went all the way over there to uh, protest. Um, They're screening a rare doco that captures the events leading up to and including the 18th, 19th, 20th, 21st of October, April uh, 2003, where activists from around Australia converged on the Baxter Detention Centre in South Australia Desert to protest imprisonment of refugees in harsh and isolated circumstances. Uh, as I said, it's uh, an event presented by the uh, New International Bookshop, Box 4 and Search Foundation. So we're going to talk to Anthony about that around 8 o'clock. Uh, we're going to hear from... Um, a really revved up Kevin. He does a great job this week going through the the uh, with a fine tooth comb uh, in a satirical fashion. This is the week that was. We're going to catch up with Zelda Grimshaw. A uh, Grimshaw. She uh, there was a very good interview with Zelda yesterday on uh, Green Left Radio about the um, uh, protests that's been established uh, around a fact- uh, factories near Bernella. 
Uh, it's uh, talking about uh, factories that create the bullets that uh, are put in the guns of our police and army and uh, also the uh, company Thales, uh, which is there as well. There's a lot of things to discuss around um, uh, the uh, uh, what's going on in uh, creating uh, manufacturing, you know, pushing Australian manufacturing towards... Uh, military purposes, and uh, we we thought it would be a good idea to catch up with Zelda again to find out the next stages of this demonstration and what's actually happening. Because of course, Benalla is a regional area, and it's a a, a long way away from where we are at the moment. So it's uh, they're taking it to the uh, the point of uh, manufacture but uh, also discussing the wider issues of Australia's involvement in creating um, uh, war machines, effectively, that are, in fact, at this moment, attacking West Papuan uh, villages. You may be aware that there is a, a major uh, activities going on at the moment in West Papua, and Australia can't hide. We, uh, we are part of that destruction. So we're going to catch up with Zelda and we're going to end up with some mighty words from Tony Mavramatis. Uh, he's the Victorian Secretary of the Metals Union, the AMWU, the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union. It's a piece that wasn't in the Stick Together program, but it was at that particular event. And uh, he does a sterling job uh, talking up what's going on for the busy workers in Shepparton. And we shouldn't forget our... Um, our fellow workers who are standing up and have been on the grass for a considerable amount of time now. And uh, there are not a lot of employers in country areas, but the fight for them is the fight for everyone. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. Would you like to reduce your risk of dementia? The Better Brains trial aims to discover whether targeted lifestyle changes can prevent memory decline in Australian adults. Participants aged 40 to 70 with a family history of dementia are allocated to receive health coaching from an allied health professional or health education materials about dementia and its risk factors. The trial is run entirely online, so visit www.betterbrains.org.au to sign up now. Better Brains is a 3CR supporter. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. As I said, we're going to have a look at the AI uh, laws that the um, European uh, Union are contemplating. Uh, We had a chat with Professor Chris Marsden. Uh, He's from the Faculty of Law, Monash University. I just thought I'd uh, quickly give you... He talks about a thing called... um, uh, What's it called? Chat GPT. Um, And I got a very interesting little... uh, a newsletter from a group called Our Communities Matter and they had a little section about NFP tech they call it and uh, this is why I, this is just an example of how AI is um, invading our lives in a in a very uh, palpable way 
uh, it relates to the uh, fact that, as it was said on a recent um, 7.30 report, in fact, they were talking to a uh, person who uh, looks at AI and its inclusion in our workforce, and they were talking about the fact that everybody considered it was an issue for blue-collar workers. Everybody talks about robots taking over the work of uh, people in factories, but this person pointed out that in actual fact it's the people who work in um, uh, white-collar jobs and uh, Uh, that should be very, very concerned. And this is an example I'll explain. Could a robot write your next funding application? Not-for-profits and charities are leaping onto chat GPT bandwagon for a range of reasons. And among the top users is generating grant applications faster. Our community is taking a keen interest in the field of artificial intelligence and its team of four data scientists is using ChatGPT and many other data tools to develop new products and insights for grant seekers and funders. Our community data scientist Nathan Mitsud said ChatGPT had witnessed, in inverted commas, the fastest uptake of a technology platform in history with more than 100 million people using the chatbot in just two months. Dr. Misfood Sud said chat GPT and other AI language models had the potential to assist groups with basic writing tasks, including grant applications. These tasks include brainstorming ideas, summarising and synthesising material, rephrasing pictures or reports to serve different audiences, conducting research of all kinds, matching applications to funding criteria, understanding funder requests. Are you getting nervous now? (laughs) Anyway, this is a chat that I had with uh, Professor Chris Marsden. Now, what we're talking about is the EU AI laws that are they're about to be brought forward. Can you tell me about what they think they are trying to control? Yeah, so so the, in fact, there's, there's two things to talk about. The, the, the first, by the way, which is very urgent, is that the Italian Data Protection Authority has um, just told OpenAI to suspend its operations, that's ChatGPT, uh, not just in Italy, but involving Italian uh, citizens' data. Uh, so effectively, there's a partial European ban on ChatGPT in place, uh, or at least suspension. Uh, so that's already come in uh, Friday night uh, as a result of the European uh, equivalent to the Privacy Act, basically. Um, so that might be news to you, and I think that's quite um, topical. Uh, but the uh, AI Act itself is aimed at effectively at public-facing Uh, what's classed as high or medium risk AI systems that the public will be using. Uh, And so that would include ChatGPT, to take one example, uh, but it would include things like chatbots on websites and other things, as long as they're driven by algorithms, which they are. Uh, So that's what they uh, intend to deal with in the AI Act. Uh, But of course, there is this um, uh, quite strong uh, privacy law in place in the meantime, Uh, And that's what the Italians have acted on. Uh, And indeed, the French are uh, considering acting upon as well. It's a little bit like uh, uh, the cat's already out of the bag, isn't it? 
Yes, and, and of course, we're talking about kind of generic, uh, what the Europeans call horizontal law, in other words, law that applies across the board. Uh, so it's the equivalent of consumer or competition law that would apply to all um, all entities. Uh, but in fact, they've had laws in place for a few years that deal with things like self-driving cars and uh, the use of AI and medical imaging and those kinds of things. Uh, and of course, you know, most of the airplanes that we get on uh, are actually driven by various forms of AI uh, in, in, in the way that they actually operate. So we've had sectoral rules for a few years, uh, but this is the first uh, the first really serious attempt at a, at a horizontal rule that will run across the whole of the economy, not just those specific, obviously high-risk uh, sectors. Yeah, and uh, when you say horizontally, are you talking about the concept that it's standards-based approach? But the idea is that there will have to be standards that will be set that companies will follow uh, because companies obviously don't want to look at this law and try to interpret it individually. They want to know that there's a particular set of um, audits they have to go through or a checklist that they have to follow. Um, so that's going to, to operate uh, and that's actually built into this uh, particular law as it's drafted at the moment. Uh, it should be said that, that, of course, it can change. Legislation is always being changed as it's being amended in the drafting. Uh, but uh, but it looks as if standards are going to be pretty key to, to how it works. And, of course, that will apply for the European Union uh, or any company that wants to do business with the European Union. And that really means it will apply to most medium and larger uh, Australian businesses that intend to deploy anything that looks like AI. Uh, there's been a lot of different... Um... Uh, papers or pa groups of people that have uh, put um, papers in to inform uh, this law. You know, they, they've observed certain things about it. And uh, some of them have said things like uh, there's not enough flexibility for future risk, for example. So the, uh, there's, there's two really important dynamics to be aware of when you look at uh, submissions about this law or explaining it, uh, in Australia what's going on with this law in Europe. Uh, and it, you have to remember that, first of all, it's theatre. So the, the, the technology companies will always say that it's, it's too rigid, it's too slow to change, it's, it's, it's not giving them the flexibility they need. That's a normal part of the kind of you know, punch and judy show, the kind of theatre that happens when you're lobbying about laws. Uh, and the reality is that standards should be flexible enough uh, as an approach to take to enforce the law uh, to help this to be done. But the second thing that, that maybe is a bit counterintuitive when you first look at this is that this law is being introduced at European level. It, by the way, it, even if it's passed this year, which is not completely certain, it won't be enforced for a further three years. So we're really looking at 2027 for it actually biting uh, in terms of the enforcement uh, on companies. But the important thing about this law as a European law is that it stops national governments uh, in the European Union from applying a stricter law. So yes, you hear these comments about, well, it's, it's not going to be flexible enough and it's going to be very old-fashioned and so on. The reality is this law is designed to make sure that there is no single European country that will introduce a stricter law. Uh, and of course, that's because it's because the American companies are they're, they're terrified that the Germans or the French or the Italians will introduce a stricter law. So actually, this is a tech company friendly uh, law. I know that sounds a bit counterintuitive, but that's the reality is that a European standard stops individual countries from introducing something uh, which is much stricter.
Yeah, well, that's interesting because the Bristol University um, people say that it doesn't um, actually accurately recognise different kinds of harm associated with uh, AI or allocate responsibility for them accurately and that it fails to ensure meaningful transparency, accountability and rights of public participation, which is quite a heavy kind of critique, isn't it? Yeah, and, and if that's the refrain project at Bristol, uh, I know the, the, the people associated with that, they're quite right. The, the reality is it's a really lightweight law, um, despite the kind of squeals of, of, of a pretend agony coming from technology companies. It's a really low bar to set for people to comply with uh, with an AI law, and it really won't give you or I as, as, as uh, individual citizens much of a right of redress. So, you know, this is not the kind of thing that would, you know, kill the successor to robo-debt. It's not the kind of thing that would really help us uh, to get, you know, much better transparency in what's going on in, you know, credit ratings, uh, you know, the, the, uh, how our, our, our credit rating uh, looks. So it, it's really a, a, a pretty thin law despite some of the, you know, corporate claims that it's, you know, strict or, or in some way, uh, uh, you know, a law too far. It's actually a very basic thing. So really they're just using a script because in actual fact it's self-assessment. There's no actual uh, mechanism for them to be, uh, to comply with the standards. There'll be a little bit of audit required, uh, but that will depend to to a large extent on how the what they call the, the European AI Board, which is meant to be the uh, the expert group implementing this. It depends how how strictly they try to implement this. One of the problems that you always have with the European law is there's 27 national governments, and that means 25 27 regulatory agencies. Uh, so you know 27 offices that come to the OIAC, our, our privacy regulator here. Uh, and you're going to get really patchy regulation. Now, bear in mind, most of these big uh, U.S. tech companies who are, after all, the leaders in this thing, um, most of them are based in Ireland. And the Irish regulator has a very poor record on implementing data protection law in the last several years. And it's not likely they're going to have some kind of you know, great transformation into a super effective, super strict regulator uh, on, the, uh, on the AI Act. So in all honesty... That's theatrical. The reality is much more likely that there will be insufficient regulation of, of AI in 2027 than that somehow, you know, the sky will fall in because there's such strict regulation. So really the um, importance of this uh, act is that it's the first of its kind from a major legislative uh, area. Uh, they say, uh, Brazil put something in, but uh, other than that, there is no other sort of regulation, is there? No, so Brazil has a proposal for regulation. They're the same on data protection as well. Brazil has a highly complex political and legislative system, so it's it's a very very long step from the, from the proposal for a law to the enforcement of a law. Same thing in Canada; they've been discussing this for a couple of years. China does have quite um, quite strict rules by comparison on AI, uh, but obviously China doesn't go through the democratic checks and balances that we we uh, associate with with democratic legislative systems. So the reality is that, yeah, we are at the beginning of, of, of the process. The problem that we all will face is that if this uh, law it almost certainly will go through, these laws tend not to be revisited by, certainly by the European Union, which is the biggest, let's face it, the biggest player uh, in the um, uh, in the kind of free, uh, free trade space. They won't revisit it again for many years. 
So I've, I've been warning people for, for a year now that if this thing goes through as a very lightweight, you know, very minimal law, we could be waiting another 20 years to actually have a more effective law that gives you or I as citizens real redress. And I'm not just saying that as a kind of, you know, Cassandra. I'm saying that because that's exactly what happened with laws uh, to do with Internet content, uh, where a law was passed in 2000, and it's only now been revised 23 years later. So my worry is that we have an AI Act, which is passed this year, and I'll be retired by the time we have its successor, uh, which is a shame for me, but a bigger shame for citizens who won't have the right to address. Because the issues around this are not just individual, but society as well, isn't it? Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, so one obvious example of facial recognition cameras, live facial recognition being used. Uh, and we know it was being used by Bunnings and by other companies last year. They they actually suspended their use of them and apologized to the privacy commissioner. But but the reality is that things like like a, uh, live facial recognition, their effect is the moment we walk out of our front door. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we're dealing with, with, with chatbots on websites while we're sitting inside our, our homes as well. So, you know, we are going to be monitored by AI for the rest of our lives. That sounds like a depressing prospect. Uh, but uh, but that's the reality. Uh, just as a matter of interest, has it reached your um, uh, knowledge? There was a um, piece of news that came out of America from some tech companies that they were going to be now using human DNA that they're culturing to insert into their experiments in AI. Do, I mean, is that a just a freak out science fiction kind of thing? It sounds to me like the kind of thing the medical regulators will be very interested in. Um, and in that kind of, in that regard, it is good that we do have, I, I mentioned earlier on, we've got these specific sectoral rules for, for areas like medical research. Um, and you don't get to play around with human DNA in experimental form without going through the medical regulators. So I am going to hope that they're on top of that. <laughs> I just read that and I thought, oh my goodness, that's so freaky. <laughs> yes, it is. And you freaked me out, actually. But thank you. <laughs> yeah, anyway, I hadn't found anybody else who's, who's thought about that. But I, yeah. And you know, it's funny because I'm relatively old. Uh, uh, my daughter thinks that uh, being um, surveilled all the time is quite normal. But I was telling her something uh, that she, because I came from a country town, I said that I found it actually really impertinent when I was young that uh, people in shops suddenly had to have their first name on a badge as if we were allowed to speak to them. I know that yes. I know that's, people think that's a really weird thing to find impertinent, but it is impertinent. No, I agree. And I, and I must say that, that we have this kind of slightly odd analysis that economists have made where they basically claim that, that privacy is a luxury good, that you don't have it in small villages because everyone knows what you're doing. Uh, you don't have it in large families because everyone walks into your room. Uh, and it's, therefore, it's something that is, you know, kind of a bit of a rich man's folly. Um, but I thought one of the, you know, one of the fruits of uh, advanced civilizations is that we we get access to these uh, uh, these uh, fundamental rights and we, and we use them. So I think the idea that we'll give them up so easily. The other thing to say is that I, I in actual fact, when they've done studies of, because of course most studies are always carried out on, on graduate students because they're the easiest group to actually survey. Uh, and when they've carried out studies of undergraduate students, they found that actually they value their, their, their privacy very strongly 
to the point that they actually spend a significant amount of time each day around um, obfuscation. In other words, around setting up things like dummy profiles, changing their privacy settings, doing all of those things that basically leave a false trail of bread, uh, digital breadcrumbs uh, for companies. So, you know, the idea that, that you know, we, we, uh, there's a group of uh, 20-somethings who don't value their privacy, they value it so much that they are actually trying to find alternative ways of dealing with surveillance uh, because that surveillance is, um, is affecting them so deeply that it's become actually bred into their digital habits that they try to throw a, a, a trail of false uh, digital breadcrumbs to, to put these surveillance companies off the scent, including companies like TikTok, which has obviously been in the news recently. Oh, that's really interesting. Someone told me the other day that they deliberately, and have for a long time, and they're older, uh, told uh, everywhere that they are born at a different date and a whole range of different things. And so she laughed and said that people are saying happy birthday to her all through the year. Oh, the extraordinary number of people who it turns out claim to be 123 years old because they were born on the 1st of January 1900. <laughs> uh, which which we know we have lots of friends who have claimed to have a first of january you know anyone who's in doubt check your facebook profile see how many of your friends have first of january as their uh as their date of birth so yeah absolutely people have been doing this for a very long time and people forget when facebook was set up as a kind of creepy dating site uh, and you are asked to reveal your relationship status well, that was an invitation 15 years ago for everybody to throw out a trail of false digital breadcrumbs to, to Mr. Zuckerberg, because if it is impertinent to put your first name on a badge, how impertinent is it to ask you what your relationship status is just so you can share a, a photo on a site? <laughs> Thank you very much for talking to me. I hope that's useful. I, I realise I was slightly less focused than just on the EUAI Act, but hopefully that gives some um, <laughs> no, useful whole, background. Yeah, I think the whole thing is kind of cute, isn't it? I mean, the whole thing is cute in a terrible sort of way. It, it, it's very complex, but actually it's a complexity that we're building into our kind of analysis of the, of the digital world around us, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. All right, my pleasure.
og du vil se, hvad der pludselig sker. Skal vi nu smile igen? Ny naturen er ved mig. Jeg er stresset, det rammer så dig. Jeg er min ven og sige til dig selv. with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and that was Winnie and the Jets and we were just talking to Professor Chris Marsden from the uh, Monash Law about the EUAI laws. Isn't that great? A whole collection of letters. Don't even have to tell you what it means. And coming up next is a chat with Anthony Snowden. G'day Anthony, how are you? Oh hi Annie, good thank you. Thanks for um, this opportunity. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely interesting conversation to have. Um, you, of course, are Box X, and if anybody's been to any demonstrations, they'll have seen Anthony going around the place uh, taking footage of and doing interviews. Uh, but, of course, nowadays the equipment is a lot easier than the equipment that you must have had to have taken with you on the Baxter Detention Centre uh, in uh, South Australia, desert in 2003, correct? Oh, very correct. <laughs> <laughs> I was just watching the footage again just before this interview, um, preparing myself, and I'm thinking, God, the the shaky camera. Oh, I'm so embarrassed by it. It's so much better, so much easier these days. And the foot, you know, what I shoot now is so much smoother, but. You know, when you're um when you go carry it around and I don't think I'm pretty sure I didn't have a tripod at that over over those three days at the Baxley detention in South Australian Desert. So, um yeah, it had a heavy camera and um yeah, you'll see it if you come along on the night we've got coming up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, uh, well, it's the importance of it, isn't it? I mean, uh, it's going to the it's going to be at the International uh, Bookshop Nibs, six thirty p.m. on Thursday, the twentieth of April, uh, which is the twentieth anniversary of the first rally to uh, outside uh, Baxter Detention Centre. These protests, um, and I was recollecting that um, I actually went to one of the protests. But uh, tell us about what actually happened. Um, uh, it, was, it was an unnerving experience because the South Australian government put must have used its entire um, police allocation on that protest, if you ask me. Yeah, well, just excuse me, just to put it in context, it's the um, yeah, it's the uh, it was Baxter Detention Centre. Well, that protest of Easter two thousand and three was um, one year after the famous Woomera um, Detention Centre Baxter. Uh, refugee detention centre protests a, a year earlier, and it's rare refugees and asylum seekers are, are kept in inhumane and very hot, isolated conditions out there in a the desert. 
and the X. So getting back to the Baxter one. Well, well, be, no, before we do, uh, for yeah. people who don't know what that means, what happened was that people outside uh, that detention centre were pushing on the fence and then for some ungodly, unknown reason, the fence actually fell down. Right? Yeah, in Woomera. Yeah. In Woomera. The, the activists um, climbed up on top of the, uh, the perimeter fence and eventually it collapsed. That's it covered in the video. Mm. Um, that was released at the time. And then they moved forward to the actual fence of the detention centre. And then, this is Wilbur, 2002. And then somehow or another, through maybe a close, we think a clothesline from within the centre, the uh, refugees managed to um, uh, jimmy open the, if that's a term for it, the um, fence and, and climb through it. And then also jump from the top of it as well. Um, jump, jump from, climb over the top and jump onto the activists and um, escape. Yeah, into them. Yeah, and, and the <laughs> and the idea of putting people in these uh, distant places in the middle of desert, uh, where the Baxter um, detention centre is as well, but in South Australia, was because they didn't expect anybody to actually go there and make protest. Well, that's one of the reasons. Yeah, that's probably one of the main reasons they never would have expected that. Yeah, so just to, for people to understand, at Woomera 2002 Easter and at Baxter 2003 Easter and Baxter 2005 Easter, there are three principal convergences of um, refugee activists from around Australia who came to those remote desert locations to um, protest on behalf of the refugees and asylum seekers that were incarcerated or detained, as the government says, but the activists called imprisonment, which it pretty well was. Yeah, so um Tell me about yeah, tell me about um I mean I, I know what it was like in I think it was the two thousand and five because you you were talking about um covering uh you, tell me tell us about the experience for you. Uh, okay so I'll okay so the two thousand and three um well it's well. One thing I've learned about um, about going on a on a coach trip on around Australia. I've been on a number of these: the Pine Gap and the Sydney and Canberra, and three times, as I mentioned, the South Australian Desert. Is um, you, you can take anything in this world, as long as it's no longer than three days. That's my. <laughs> that's, how I, that's how I look at it. You don't, you don't get a chance to shower. Um, someone makes up outdoor toilets. Some, you know, someone volunteers to do that. Um, it's very dusty, windy. You, you stay in a tent. That's well. That's no. That's okay to stay in a tent, but I know the, the police might pretty well, as, as happened at Baxter, um, have their police horses run over it, even though you're inside the tent and they can see that. Um, it's just full on. You don't know what's going to happen day to day, hour to hour. Uh, you go through periods of elation and dread. Um, there's lots of random, well, the random violence. Not well, but to do the police, not amongst the activists that never have thought. Just no, nah. it's it's money police confrontations. Yeah, because what happens is the activists want to get as close as they can to the refugee camp, and the cops, which is their job, I guess, is to keep people back. They didn't want to. They did not want it to happen at Baxter. What happened at Woomera, where the activists got very close and. And um, affected the uh, 
escape of the refugees. So there's no way in the world they're going to allow that either of those Baxter uh, rallies um, in 2003 and 2005. So, yeah, it's... Um, Pretty nerve-wracking sort of three days, but you feel really good when it's over and, and you look over the achievements of it and all, all the failures of it. And um, so, so, I don't know, is that... Yeah, yeah, no, no, I mean, uh, actually, I know what you mean because uh, when I went, uh, the horses didn't go across the uh, tents, but uh, the police spent all night with their helicopters going overhead, which was quite unnerving. And also, uh, by that stage, you had to walk a very long way in order to actually get yeah. to to the actual uh, detention centre, which was That's interesting. That's right. So, we, so you, you went to the 2005 one. Yeah, and yeah. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And I, I went to both of them. So that's another interesting thing. Whenever I've spoken to people who went to either either or both the Baxters, um, we... We always get we always get our stories confused about what happened at which protest because they just mold it just melds into one as you as you look back twenty years ago or eighteen years ago. Yeah, that's right. And also, uh, I mean, uh, we can tell tell because uh, in the the one I went to, we went to Vanstone's house in the suburbs, which caused controversy because how dare you go to a politician's house? But it's, yes, I do remember. <laughs> but it's based on the principle that they uh, we know where you live. <laughs> yeah, was that Adelaide? Yeah, that was Adelaide on the way. Yeah, that's right. We the the coaches stopped. Well, we I suppose that was Tom take take us to this house and stopped, and people protested outside the house, but didn't get very close. And I do remember, I do have footage of this. The South Australian police. They rolled up and they opened up their divvy vans. They opened up the uh, the doors of the divvy van. It's like, we're ready for you. We're going to just, the moment anything happens, we've got the doors open, ready to put you into these divvy vans. But as it turned out, no one got, no one was going to get that close or didn't yeah. really care. That, that wasn't that really close. the point. Um, no, the point, yeah, yeah I, I get there to. No, no, it's funny because uh, the police obviously had complete. Uh, a, a very strange understanding of who the demonstrators were, but their sense of violence was completely understood by the demonstrators. Yeah, and just for the people to understand, um, Amanda Banstone was the Minister for Immigration. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, yeah, even though now they roll around as being a benign person, you know, terribly mm-hmm. intelligent and benign, um, that was what her role was at that time. Um, so this uh, event is actually quite amazing that you were able to take footage at this time, and it's part of understanding how important it is to actually do coverage of events. Uh, one, because people as a memory blurs, but also because it uh, marks uh, what actually really happened. I mean, I can remember, like you said, getting to the um, detention centre and then seeing the people on the roof, uh, the refugees on the roof, who were, uh, uh, you know, showing that they could hear you, that, you know, that they could see you, and it was a relief to them to know that people hadn't forgotten them. Well, in this video, as I was just playing it before, for you know, number or obviously played it a few times myself, and um, there is a scene there where, at night, the activists had got as close as they could to the detention centre, and the police are yelling them to keep back. But one of the activists is saying, "Yelling, we can, we can hear you." Yeah. And then everyone keeps quiet, and then we try and hear what they're them saying. I don't think it's recorded. You can just 
they must have been right back in the middle of the compound. But I think at the time we could hear them, and this woman is yelling back, we can hear you. Yeah. So that, that was like a poignant sort of moment. Actually, getting back to the other thing about, you asked me before, Annie, about my experiences. The other thing is, with cameras and everything, is the whole issue of batteries. <laughs> Recharging batteries, you know. Um, <clears throat> that was a bit of an issue. Um, so I've generally been quite fortunate in that someone always brings along a generator. And um, with a generator, you can um, plug it in and, all, and then use your battery pack and, and recharge camera batteries. But that's yeah. a major issue um, when you go on a three-day um, uh, protest. Yeah, that's right. So we're lucky. <laughs> we're lucky to be able to go on uh, uh, Thursday, the 20th of April at 6.30 at Nibs, new international bookshop, which is housed at uh, Victoria Trades Hall, to either relive that experience if you were part of it, but also... Uh, to go and see what people did uh, outside the Baxter Detention Centre in those early days of calling for uh, freedom for refugees. Yeah, thank you. And um, can I just announce? Yeah, go. A scoop for you, Annie. I haven't put this up on Facebook yet, but I've um, the film after we played the video. We're going to have about twenty-five minutes of talk, and I can announce now that I've got Pamela Kerr. Yep, speaking. And Pamela features very prominently in this video. And she's a long-term refugee advocate. And, um, yeah, and she's very well-spoken. And, and it's gonna, I was speaking to her just yesterday, and she's going to really give us some highlights, but not in the video, and, and give us some um, information that not many people know. So that's... I'm really pleased she's speaking. And the other person speaking is Liam Ward. And Liam was at... Um, back to 2003 as well as Pablo. He's not actually in the video, but he was definitely there. I, I do remember it. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> right. Lim and he's always also. a good speaker. Yeah, Lim's a very good speaker as well. And um, if I can just speak for one more minute. Yeah. Um, Annie, I just, just generally speaking, it's fascinating to me how we had all these um, coach trips, you know, the three to the South Australian desert, as I just mentioned, the two Baxes and the Woomera. There was one to Pine Gap in 2000 and two or three. Um, there was a couple to Canberra. There was a couple to Sydney. Yeah. Um, this is all in the early 2000s. And that whole world, <coughs> excuse me, that whole world of, of going on coach trips for a few days around Australia for activism is just, I think it's just disappeared. Yeah, I don't know. But I, I went on one up to... Um John Howard's place in Kirribilli uh, after Civex, um, uh, the drownings of the refugees. Yeah, there was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. That was between, that was fascinating. Well, between the two Baxters, the Baxter two thousand and three and the Baxter two thousand and five, and I don't know why they did. For some reason, it just was didn't happen in two thousand and four. But instead, we went on just one one coach bus, left Trades Hall, and went to Kirribilli, and. Um, we um, slept underneath the Sydney Harbour Bridge. That's right. I did. <laughs> oh, you were at that one, yeah. yeah was that, so that, uh, was... that was really good because um, I remember uh, I was living in a country town at the time and I went with uh, this person who was there and uh, she, we were walking along the street along uh, the road that uh, leads to Kerribilli and it was completely lined with cops and she said to me, put your head up, uh, look them straight in the eye, uh, they work for us. <laughs> I thought, no, that's a great way to... It's like wearing a suit to a demonstration. <laughs> and actually, I 
remember that that one in Kirribilli is there was a press conference with the um, the police, and by the time I got it, I missed it, and I thought, oh, I saw that. This won't work, but I just sort of thought, I'll ask this commander, as they call him up in Sydney, this police commander, if he would be happy to be interviewed by me. And he said, yeah, sure. And we did this interview, and my main question was, I said, look, in New South Wales at protests, the police wear guns, but in Victoria at protests they don't. Why is that? And he said, oh, well, we've got to be prepared if we have to go somewhere else. We're always going to be prepared with our have our weapons with us, no matter where we are. And um, anyway, it's, I just remember, anyway, the funny story about that is, um, I think I was just so so amazed I got the interview, I forgot to press the record button. <laughs> yeah, so that, I always tell people that story, and I cannot believe I got this. And then I told him about it later on, all his media people, and I go, oh, he'll do it again. And then we just couldn't organise it, couldn't get to him. And... Um, so that really is surprising because it's very rare you get the police speaking to you. Yeah, yeah. Well, you'd have to uh, and, wonder uh, about the forked tongue. Um, anyway, we have to move on. And uh, uh, Anthony, thanks very much for having a chat with me this morning. Thank you, Annie. Thanks very much for calling. Yeah, well, that was Anthony Snowden. Uh, he's going to be presenting some footage, rare footage, in fact, that captures the events leading up to and including 18th, 19th, 20th and 21st of April 2003, where activists from around Australia converged on the Baxter Detention Centre in the South Australian desert to protest the imprisonment of refugees in harsh and isolated circumstances. This was the beginning of the uh, draconian uh, approach towards refugees in Australia as part of the early history of it. Um, it's going to be at NIBS, a new international bookshop, at 6.30pm Thursday, 20th of April, and it's the 20th anniversary. So uh, be there or be square. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when as the US of the UN of the US of the world pursued its relentless extradition of true blue Aussie Julian Assange for exposing US of war crimes... The US OB displayed its renowned competence and watertight security by managing to release thousands of top-secret security documents revealing what it really thinks about its very, very, very close friends. Who, incidentally, are their very, very, very closest friend when some government member of that country makes the ritual visit to Kowtow and lick boots? In fairness, with True Blue Aussie, it generally manages to work out this is the one down under, not the one next to another very, very close friend, Germany. Well, apart from George W. Bash, the workers, but then he didn't have a clue what it really thinks. So we assumed some giant mine security guru last heard gasping, oops, shit, I shouldn't have hit that goddamn key, will, like Assange, now be facing 175 years in the slammer. The US of sure as hell likes to take no risks on longevity, doesn't it? Although they've arrested some hard-right ideologue working for the military. Imagine that, a hard-right ideologue working for the military. And given it revealed secret information about its very, very, very close friend Ukraine's war machine, naturally Ukraine will seek to extradite the security idiot responsible, which the US of couldn't possibly oppose. Well, well, couldn't possibly oppose without dropping its case against Julian Assange. 
So it comes down to whether the accused does 175 years in a US of or Ukrainian slammer. In the satire can't compete department, as all this came out after eons expressing on behalf of the whole world, which it represents, the whole liberty, freedom and democracy world, repugnance that evil China is spying on all of us, a US of spokesperson dismissed criticism with, it's not serious, everyone knows that everyone spies on everyone else. What? The US of spies on people? On everyone else? But a bit of a dilemma facing True Blue Aussie, one of the everyone else's. See, Socialist Party policy commits the government to signing the UN of the US of the UN of the World Treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, which we know was initiated in True Blue Aussie and won a Nobel Peace Prize, described, that is, signing it by big supremo Anthony Albing Uzi as a labour at its uh, best. But the US OB has ordered, or sorry, made clear to its very, very, very close friends they should not sign a treaty banning nuclear weapons because, and here's logic run riot, direct quote, it would undermine peace and security. Let's try that again. Banning weapons that could destroy the planet before climate change does the job threatens peace and security. And signing the treaty would prohibit nuclear-armed U.S. of air and sea-trained killer protectors of liberty, freedom and democracy from landing in or being based in Trublawazi. And wouldn't that be a security disaster? No nuclear targets in Trublawazi, a threat to the Forkers deal. So what a dilemma for the socialist government. And is anyone prepared to bet on which side the super-courageous, independent-thinking, tongues-covered-with-US-of-boot-polish socialists will come down, or, more pertinently, prepared to bet they'll sign the treaty? Ukraine's plea for lovers of liberty, freedom and democracy to condemn Russia's threat to station nuclear weapons in Belarus met with resounding silence from its NATO neighbours which surround Russia and a very mooted response from the bastion of liberty, freedom and, as Ukraine was reminded, that uh, just a small barrier to criticising evil Russia, because good, good, good US of has nuclear weapons all over Europe, pointing at we-know-who. Ditto as Ukraine et al. in this case attacked the hypocrisy of Russia chairing the UN of Security Council. Its case diluted a fair bit, mainly because long-haired, commie, greedy, goody-goodies pointed out that the US of chaired the council as it was illegally invading, slaughtering and destroying Vietnam, and both the US of and then Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country chaired same while illegally invading, slaughtering and destroying in Iraq and Afghanistan, which took a bit of the stuffing out of the attack. The, oh shit, oops, wrong, goddamn key leak, well, more, de more deluge than leak, included the US of declaring the UN of Supremo, Guterres, as a person of interest. Sus, soft on the bad guys, and worse, taking the threat of climate change, if there is such a thing, seriously. This uh, threat to international peace and freedom seems to have forgotten he works for the UN of the US of. He's forgotten the US of bit, and he better learn quickly or else. Uh, are you threatening him? Of course not. Just a bit of advice he'd be advised to heed. The peace-loving US of never, never threatens anyone and would never threaten anyone.
just in case there is such a thing as climate change, two highly responsible bodies, the Clean Energy Investor Group and the Investor Group on Climate Change, not sure what the difference is, iterated their commitment to renewable energy with just the one proviso. They shouldn't have to foot the bill. State and federal governments can stimulate new renewable energy sources, but they should avoid owning generation assets. They showed their commitment to socialism funding, capitalism owning. Governments can provide research and development funding, support demonstration projects, and provide subsidies and other incentives. Aren't we filled with admiration every time we see the caring business class express its big-heartedness? The socialist emission reduction uh, scheme is so effective it has been applauded by much of the pollution industry. Although while the cement industry applauds it, it says it must be exempt because it would be too impractical and costly not to be exempt. And thank goodness the government has agreed. The renowned logic and consistency of the caring business class capitalist economy is exemplified in Silicon Valley, where tech companies hired lots more people than they needed, then unhired, or sorry, sadly had to let go, lots of the people they didn't need. But then, how brilliant, paid recruiters nearly $300,000 not to recruit. Here, the Business Profits Council, always intent on fairness and balance in the caring business class, lazy, avaricious worker relationship, is distraught that the socialists are pursuing ideological restrictions on casual employees and labour hire that would entrench outdated work practices and undermine its supposed support of enterprise bargaining. Worse, the government wasn't consulting nearly enough with caring employers. Ah, yes, what outdated work practices? We asked Supremo Jennifer Worst a wages cut. Uh, totally yesterday, practices like wages, time off, and lots of crippling work practices that undermine the win-win relationship in which the evil, lazy, avaricious workers we so care about can enjoy their desperate desire for flexibility. Well, not workers, individual contractors. What? The government wants them to be paid. I told you it was ideological, and the caring business class is totally opposed to ideology. Although, Jennifer, independent studies, that is, independent of caring employers' assertions, show these workers, individual contractors, whatever, these workers' people would much rather receive wages than the conditions full-time employees receive. Uh, which shows the dangerous subliminal distortions created by government bet on anti-caring business class ideology. So, listen, let's get behind the Caring Business Profits Council campaign. Uh, good luck with it, Jennifer. Uh, thank you. On the evil alternative, and as we contemplate a US old presidential candidate campaigning from a prison cell, the only other person to campaign from prison was, of course, a commie socialist, Eugene Debs, who said, I thank the capitalist masters for putting me here. They know where I belong under their criminal and corrupting system. It is the only compliment they could pay me. What treason, what ingratitude, what evil. But it gets worse. He was jailed for opposing the war, denouncing anti-war activists being arrested by the junkers of Wall Street.
The working class who freely shed their blood and furnish the corpses have never yet had a voice in either declaring war or making peace. It is the ruling class that invariably does both. Any wonder he was charged with sedition. The same charge levelled at Julian Assange, by the way. Oh, and just in case we're wondering, strangely enough, he didn't win. And thank goodness when we read the sensible philosophical truths revealed about commie socialist evil by Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect columnist bolt through the head. This week, outing Indigenous academic Marcia Langton as a former communist and informing us, Marxists don't treat people as individuals. They divide us into faceless members of a class. That lets them demonise enemies and crush them like insects. Something capitalism would never do. Thank God for benign capitalism. How would ignorant people gather important knowledge without great thinkers, great purveyors of truth, like bolt through the head? Oh, of course, her Marxist background is all the more reason not to support the voice. No, no, no. And hasn't caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo Constable Peter Duffer's decision in Canberra to oppose a voice making decisions in Canberra, like, you know, Canberra, worked a treat. Well, apart from his strong leadership aimed at unity disintegrating around him, but one of our wisest true blueozies has reinforced Pete's no, 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 like you, no, 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 by urging the supporters of a yes vote to be nice. Yes, former minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Alexander, is concerned those out-of-control, long-haired, greeny, commie radicals voting yes will cause disruption and say nasty things, hurtful things about the couth, gentle, sophisticated, deep thinkers who know white true should not recognise the terra nullius non-people. And who could be more sophisticated than Constable Duffer? Not suggesting the caring business class hayseed and sheep shit coalition is even slightly conservative, but as the Victorian caring business class lot are about as united as Pete's lot is over the voice, with a move to overthrow State President Greg Mora Bellicosa, former big-time train killer, partner of that former deeply respected and loved MP Sophie, appointed by former big supremo Scummo as a neutral arbiter to the fair work, no true blue Aussie, no longer work choices, just looks like a con mission. I moved to replace him because he's not conservative enough. Let's try that one again. The caring business class party says Greg, and by inference Sophie Morabella Cosa, is stroke R, not conservative enough. Doesn't that say heaps? And won't that do wonders for their inelectability? My word, they're quick learners, and it couldn't happen to a nicer bunch, could it? Finally, while they know recognising the terra nullius non-people as people would be racist and divisive, thank goodness there is one arena where terra nullius non-people can be recognised as non-people people when they run out on a footy field and can be told they have no right to act like people. Go back to where you came from. Uh, which shows a slight ignorance of history. No right, go back especially if they're on the other team and, as usual, are starring and making a mess of your team. We have to wonder what the racist abusing Indigenous players think of the Indigenous stars in their own team.
although obviously logical thinking escapes them. Good morning. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Doesn't matter how long it takes, but I know I'll get there soon. I've been looking the wrong way at the other side of the moon. It's not easy to leave it, but I know where I'm going. I could hold the wheel forever if I knew you'd be there too. Back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and we've got uh, Zelda Grimshaw on the line. G'day, Zelda. How are you? Hello. Yes. Hi. <laughs> Thought I'd lost you again. Um, tell us. Uh, can you give my listeners a little bit of a rundown of what you've been doing this week? Yeah. So on Tuesday morning, we put a barricade up outside the bullet factory at Benalla. Um, it's a company. It's owned by the Defence Department, but they lease it to two private companies, Naya, who manufacture bullets for Australian police, and Talas, who manufacture a whole lot of munitions there, um, including some that they export to Indonesia who use them in West Papua. 
That's right. And uh, so there were about, you were, had about 25 compatriots and you set up a barricade and successfully stopped the shift, uh, the worker shifts going in, didn't you? We did. We actually stopped two shifts going in, so no bullets made in the factory that day. Um, we set up quite a hard um, barricade with a, um, like a wrecked vehicle, so we had a a vehicle that we placed in front of their gate, we locked their gate and then chained our wrecked vehicle to the gate. So, um, yeah, there was definitely no no cars going in or out of the factory that day and then watched as the early morning workers just turned around and had a day off. (laughs) So tell us, um, what's been the response of the police? Well, it was curious um, that police didn't even talk to us so the police turned up uh, fairly quickly and, I mean, I guess I expected the barricade to be down within an hour. Um, but the police didn't even approach us and talked to the Defence Department guys who'd come out to, you know, keep an eye on us um, and hung around for half an hour or so. Our liaison person spoke to them and said, oh, you know... You don't really need to be here. This is, you know, we're peaceful people and no one's going to get hurt here. So I'm sure you're busy and you've got other things to do. <laughs> um, but, I mean, we've said that to police before at at, um, at actions and that hasn't, uh, hasn't sent them on their way. But this time it did. They left and most of the day there were no police even present. Um, so much later in the week, we ended up holding the space for nine hours. So we held this barricade for nine hours. Uh, so, yeah, very curious that, um, I mean, we, we think that weapons companies don't want arrests um, because these companies function in our communities by people not knowing that they're there. And um, they, yeah, it's not it's not about preserving their brand name or their good reputation. It's about no one knowing that they're there um, because... If people become aware that you know, there's a bullet factory, um, you know there is no social license for weapons manufacturers. There's, no, there's nobody who thinks, oh yeah, that's a good industry to have. <laughs> mm. There's been this um, ongoing uh, infiltration of uh, Australian manufacturing and moving it towards uh, we- weapons production, hasn't there? Like you say, in an insidious way. Yeah, so I mean, under Turnbull, um, they decided they were going to give an extra almost $300 billion to weapon, to boost the weapons manufacturing industry. Um, they talk about it as, you know, sovereign capability, which means, you know, I think manufacturing weapons in Australia is what that translates to. Um, but what it, uh, what it really means is that our money um, is going into the hands of private weapons corporations, usually big U.S. corporations. So, you know, Lockheed Martin, um, Boeing, Raytheon, all the General Dynamics, all the big ones, um, get our money uh, to help them make weapons in Australia. And, you know, they're happy. They're getting taxpayer money. Yay. Um, and for us, it's just a loss in every single direction. So it's, it's a loss in terms of democracy because um, weapons corporations are gaining more and more power over governance, over, like, they're, they're basically direct defence policy now. They, you know, with, through their lobbyists and through their think tanks and whatever, like, the people who write the defence 
paper, the defence, you know, white paper that becomes policy, are, are weapons company personnel. Like, that's who... They basically design our defence policy. So there's a loss of democracy. There's a loss of money from our economy. I mean, $270 billion over 10 years going into the hands of private weapons corporations, but also um, now $368 billion going to a UK company, BAE, to make nuclear submarines that will be obsolete by the time we get them. So, I mean, the loss of money is just immense. Like, mm. Thales, and, and Thales is an interesting company too because it's French and, I mean, it's associated with uh, various, uh, like uh, one of the the people that are to do with universities, I mean, quite, quite besides the American companies and their infiltration of Melbourne University and then there's Sydney University. I think the uh, Vice-Chancellor of um, Sydney University is associated with Thales. Um it's a French company, and it, it's it's not just bullets, is it, with Thales? No, so Thales are making um, a bunch Ta- of... Munitions. Is that how you say it, Thales? I think so. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> I think so, I think it's Thales. Thales. So the the yeah. Vice-Chancellor of Sydney University, I think is the president of the board of, of Thales. Yeah, um, right, yeah, there you go. Yeah. yeah, and RMIT has Albert, and Melbourne Uni has... Um, Lockheed Martin and University of Queensland has Boeing. So, yeah, this this is another way that the weapons companies are kind of, you know, ins- insinuating themselves into our public institutions. Um, they're also in high schools. Yeah. Like, yeah. So Thales is a French billion, multi-billion dollar um, company who have been supplying the Indonesian Navy for 40 years. So a lot of the naval guns um, in in Indonesia are, are Thales guns. Um, so people might recall the Biak massacre in 1998 when naval ships opened fire on um, an assembly of a couple of hundred people on the island of Biak in West Papua. Um, so those would have been Thales guns. Um, and they also make, you know, a series of kind of explosive projectiles um, so Tyler's rockets were found in a village in the highlands of West Papua about a year ago. There was a, there were a number of helicopter attacks on villages in in the highlands, um, firing you know these rockets that explode. I mean they're sort of like small missiles, um, and some of them didn't explode. And there's a photograph of a child holding one of the mm. unexploded missiles, and that's how we were able to identify that this. This was a Thales bomb. Um, so our action on Tuesday was in solidarity with folks in West Papua. So our friends in Papua knew we were taking the action. They knew we were there and they were pretty pleased about it. Um, and the other solidarity um, uh, angle was with the elders of Yundamu who were calling for there to be no police guns. So that was our major call at this at this section was disarm police. Um, they don't need guns, and um, and Naya are there making bank every time there's an, a police shooting. Is there um, ways people can um, uh, help out with your campaign? Because this is only one step in the um, the campaign, isn't it? True. Yeah. So we're called Wage Peace, <coughs> but I mean. 
uh, reaching out via our website or our social media is the best way to contact us. We do run public events um, from time to time, so come along to one of those and let us know that you're keen. Um, otherwise, you know, take action in your own area. There are weapons companies all over Australia in hiding in our suburbs, and um, and they're all up to no good. I mean, they take our money and then they make weapons that are going to be used against us. So it's yeah, it's just a loss in every direction. Thanks for talking to us this morning, Zelda. No worries. Hey y'all, this is Natalie from Blue King Brown and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. And uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and uh, we've just been talking to Zelda Grimshaw uh, from Wage Peace who's been doing a a, um, protest outside a bullets factory in Benalla and where two companies, Anaya and Talus, occupy a complex which make and manufacture war um, bullets and uh, war machines. In fact, uh, you have to think that uh, maybe there's an involvement in the recent um, shootings in um, Burma uh, where um, people, where aeroplanes were used to strafe uh, communities. Anyway, uh, we're now moving on to uh, the last part of the program. Uh, This is just a small piece from... A small piece from... I don't know what's going on there. It's making lots of noise. But anyway, I've put it to bed. Um, Coming up next is a little piece from uh, Tony Mavramatis. He's the um, Victorian Secretary of the AMWU. And he was talking at the CFMMU rally in the city uh, just before Easter. But it's about the busy workers and he does a mighty turn on uh, the podium. Got a sight, got a sight, construction workers, most organised, disciplined, strong, they understand what's going on. You heard today from Earl Setchers talking about the industrial relations system, and I'm going to give you an example at the end of this about what's going on with some cannery workers up in Shepparton. You heard John Setka talk about, you know, the past, how we're going to fix the, the, the industrial relations system also. But let me tell you what's going on. I'll give you some data around about the cost of living and some corporate greed. This is the facts. We've got rent 15%, housing 10%, groceries up, up 9%, clothing and footwear up 5%. Let me tell you about some corporations because this is about corporate greed. We've got Qantas making profits $1 billion. We've got CSL, $2.4 billion. $2.4 million, right? It's a lot of fucking money. Blue Scope still, $599 million. BHP, $6.6 billion. Coles, $617 million. Woolworths, $907 million. This is what's creating the crisis and the cost of living. 
Let me tell you just a little bit more how much CEOs are getting paid. And John touched on that a little bit before. We've got the Macquarie Group CEO earning $23.7 million a year. We've got the ResMed CEO who took home $16.1 million a year. We've got the Amcor CEO who makes $13.6 million a year. We've got CSL CEO took home $17.5 million a year. Now when we sit down and we negotiate with these greedy fuckers, and they tell us they can't afford to give us a decent pay rise, we look at them in the eyes and we say, well, share your fucking profits and share your fucking earnings, you fucking tight-ass bastards. Let me tell you about the industrial relations system and it's an example of what's going on for the busy 45 Shepparton workers. They are cannery workers. Some are on, on, on $28 an hour, right? Just keep that in mind, $28 an hour. We're sitting and negotiating for nine months with Busy. Nine months because of the industrial relations system. This company has made profits of $7 billion in the last year. And when we negotiate with them, they say to us, we can only offer you 2.75% on $28 an hour. What do you say about that? What do you say about that? What do you say about that? So these workers have been out for 10 weeks now. They've hit the grass. Remember, they're on $28 an hour. And we're supporting them because justice needs to be written here when we've got $6 billion, $7 billion of profits and workers are only earning $28 an hour. There's something wrong with the fucking system. And we're supporting these guys. Are you supporting these guys? So the chance is this. The chant is this, when we hear corporate greed, we say, you say, stand up, fight back, yeah? You got it? Yep. When I say corporate greed, you say, stand up, fight back. Corporate greed. Stand up, fight back. That's not fucking good enough. I can't hear him at the back and I can't see the fist in the air. We'll do it a few more times. When I hear of corporate greed, what do you say? Stand up, fight back. What do we say? Stand what do we say? What do we say? Are we going to support these busy workers? Are we going to make sure we win? Are we going to stand up for corporate greed? Good on you, I love you, well done. Yeah, I told you. It was a mighty speech. I'm sorry, I should have given you a language warning. I forgot about that. Um, uh, you, we're at the end of the program. It's uh, Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, on this program today, we uh, l spoke to Professor Chris Marsden from the Monash Law Centre about uh, the EU AI laws coming up. We spoke to uh, Anthony Snowden, who has got an event at the International a new international bookshop, 6.30pm Thursday, 20th of April, for the 20th anniversary of the Baxter Detention Centre protests, rare doco that captures the events. Uh, there's, uh, and uh, uh, Pamela Kerr is going to be speaking as well as Liam Ward. They were both there, uh, mighty speakers. Uh, coming up after that, uh, this is the week that was, we spoke to Zilda Grimshaw, who uh, gave us an update on what happened at the uh, Benalla uh, protest outside uh, the um, area that uh, is housing 
two companies that are in the process of creating. One creates the bullets that put in the guns for police and the other um, uh, Talis um, happily uh, supports, uh, uh, supplies equipment to the Indonesian army that's uh, actively killing West Papuans. Uh, we finished with Tony uh, Maframatis from the uh, rally, the CFMMU rally. He's from the AMWU, Victorian branch. We're going to go out with a Trifford song, Wide Open Road. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.